0: I don't know if you're like me but every once in a while recently I think back to like intense covid times. Now I know that we're covid is still a thing. Don't send me an email saying we're still it's still a thing. Don't don't tell people that. I know. I know covid is going around. We had it not so long ago. But do you remember like the real like spring summer 2020 covid? That was intense. We lived through something, like shelter at home, phrases like that, safer at home. People, Do you remember how people would uh, color on their picture window in, their, in the front of their home and little rainbows and hearts and thanking essential workers for all that they do? And then just not seeing people for months. I don't know how you single people did it. So Intense so intensely lonely and quiet. And there were all things that some of us, I, re, I remember, I was just thinking about this this morning as I was thinking through this. I remember hiking, and we would, if someone was coming at you on the other side of the trail, you'd be like, get away, get away, go to the other, to the other side. Little things like that. But I don't know about you, but the, one of the things that I missed most was dinner parties. Getting together with friends, eating, hanging out, I like cooking as people are over. I just like cooking food for people who like food in particular. That's that's one of my favorite things. There was no dinner parties. You can only have so many dinner parties for your own family or by yourself, right? Man, what a bummer. when you get into this dinner party mode, there's a certain kind of etiquette you're supposed to have, right? It's these unwritten rules within our culture that we have that some of you are really good dinner party guests, and you bring a gift when you're invited to dinner. Don't expect me to bring a gift if you invite me over for dinner. I don't, I, I don't abide by those rules. I'm rude and just thoughtless, kind of. I, my wife will do that for me. But you you you're supposed to be grateful for everything, you're supposed to compliment the your host on everything that's cooked, whether it's delicious or not. You 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 compliment the home, you have these you you have we have this etiquette that, that is expected. You don't go around and just start like starting debates at a dinner party. Not if you want to be welcomed back again. Why is Randy talking about dinner parties? Talking about dinner parties because, see, it turns out our Savior, our Messiah, turns out he was kind of a drag to invite to a dinner party. (laughs) Jesus, our Lord and Master, our Messiah, was a terrible dinner guest. He didn't abide by the rules of etiquette, and he stirred things up and challenged his host, challenged the guests, made them feel super uncomfortable. Jesus was not the kind of guy you'd want to invite to a dinner party if you wanted to look good within this culture. This morning in our text, we're going to find Jesus invited to a really important dinner party. By a really, hosted by a really important person. And in this culture, you would be thanking God that you got and you made the invite list to this person's dinner party. And Jesus comes in and just turns everything upside down. We're going to be starting in Luke 14. We've been in this sermon series called The Way of Jesus since last July. We're almost done. I think in June we'll be done with it. But we started out looking at the Sermon on the Mount and getting challenged by those three chapters within the book of Matthew. And then we're, we've been in the parables since then, thinking through these radical subversive teachings of Jesus that got to the, the foundation under the rug of the kingdom, pulling the rug up of the kingdom of God and saying, what is the kingdom really like? And what were these subversive stories? What's their purpose? Luke 14 is kind of an, scholars call it an episode. It's like, a, it's like an episode of a really good TV series that you follow. I need a couple of good ones. You can give me some recommendations on the way out maybe. But the Luke 14 is this epic narrative. Luke 14 and 15 we're going to spend a couple of weeks in because there's these really subversive, really radical parables that Jesus speaks within it. And it all begins with Jesus being invited into this prominent Pharisee's home for a Shabbat dinner this morning, we're just going to set the stage for this episode within the book of Luke, and it's going to be a fun time, and it's going to be a challenging time, I want to tell you. Like, I have to reflect. I'm an Enneagram 8, so for those of you who believe in witchcraft and the Enneagram, that means <laughs> that, means that I'm, I like challenging things. I like challenging people. I like challenging dynamics. It's, it's what I thrive on in many ways. So I constantly have to ch- check myself, if this, is this my Enneagram number coming out? Is this me wanting to just challenge things with another challenging sermon? And I look back and I say, no, it's just Jesus. It's the Enneagram 8 in Jesus coming about maybe, coming out. But Jesus just challenging stuff. And so I promise you, in these next several weeks, if you don't walk out of these doors challenged, it means you're either sleeping or doing Wordle or setting your fantasy baseball team. If, If that's you four people, you're welcome for the reminder. So let's get into the story here. This is Luke 14. If you have your Bibles and you're like me, or it's going to be up front on the screen, or there might be a Bible in front of you. The episode begins one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. All these words matter. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the expert of the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Isn't that ironic? Jesus, God incarnate, asking the religious leaders, What's the law? He knows. But they remained silent, so taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. That means Jesus just became ceremonially unclean. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So begins the episode in the book of Luke. Now there's a couple of things going on here that... We need to understand in order to, to really get the, the nature of what Jesus is about to teach us and what Jesus is doing here. So we find this is a Sabbath day, and Jesus is walking with his disciples probably, and with this, and he's, in, he's headed on his way to, to a meal, post-synagogue, post-worship service meal. Many of you are going to be... You're going to go to Mother's Day meals. Maybe you're here, you're going to go out to brunch. Maybe you don't have family around, so you're going to, you're going to you know, band together with a couple of people and go out to whatever the place, the local place is. People have been doing this for thousands of years, going to meal, having a meal after worship service. This just happens to be a Shabbat meal. In Jewish... Ancient Jewish cultures, there's three Shabbat meals, one on Friday evening when the sun goes down, one on Saturday morning, late morning-ish, and then one on Saturday evening before the sun goes down while it's still Sabbath. And this is that right before the sun goes down meal. This is that post-synagogue worship service meal. Jesus, Luke tells us in Luke 4, that Jesus was a practicing Jew. Jesus, his custom, it says, was to go to the synagogue on on the Sabbath. It's just normal. There's, a, there's some normal things going on here, but there's some very abnormal things going on here as well. The first abnormal thing that we, scholars wonder about is why Jesus was invited to this prominent Pharisee's dinner party. We're going to see in a moment being invited to a dinner party is a really, really crucial part of the society and culture. And if you've been paying attention to anything the last month around here, you know that Jesus and the Pharisees don't get along very well. So scholars are wondering why Jesus was invited to this this dinner party, and there's two guesses. One is that they're watching him to be able to trap him. It even says in the text He was being watched very closely. But that might not be it. Also, Jesus has a couple of acquaintances, a couple of friends within the Pharisees. It's not all adversarial. Guys like the name of Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe this was one of those guys. We don't know. We don't know why Jesus was invited to it, but this is an important dinner to get invited to. The second weird, abnormal thing about this story is this guy who had, if you have an NASB Bible or a King James Bible, it would say this man who had what? Dropsy, Randy Schmore for the win. Dropsy. Now, dropsy, I've, I've wondered my whole life, what is dropsy? Does it mean his face is kind of dangling or something? It's, no, it's he suffered from an edema. That's, this is an ancient, antiquated word, dropsy, for this medical phenomenon that we know by the word edema. See if I get this right, doctor. But an edema is basically a buildup of fluid that causes your body to swell, and it's usually a result of congestive heart failure or kidney failure. Did I get it right? Yeah, all right. It's a buildup of fluid. You're engorged, right? And the ancient people had no clue what it really was. And it's not their fault. This is 2,000 years ago. Sometimes we forget that this is an ancient book that we center ourselves around. But 2,000 years ago, they had no idea what, this, what the edemas were. They had no idea what congestive heart failure was, kidney renal failure. They had no idea. And so what they thought was that this guy sinned. This guy did something. And man, look at him. He's atrocious disgusting. And also he has this insatiable thirst, but if he drinks more, it's going to basically slowly kill him. And so because they believed that he had this edema, this dropsy, because of some sin in his life, that made him immediately unclean, which is particularly inconvenient if you're on your way to the third Shabbat meal of the weekend. Because if you come into contact with this guy with dropsy, with this guy who's disgusting, with this guy who would have been thrown out of his family, with this guy who would have lost his job, who would have had no means to provide for himself, I'm talking about a marginalized person here. If you came in contact with him on the way to Shabbat meals, you'd be ceremonially unclean. Super inconvenient. So they would stay away from this dude for sure, 100%. Jesus, though, can't help himself. Normal religious people like you and I, we walk right by the dude on Van Buren who's in bad shape so we can get to church service on time, right? Or to brunch afterwards on time. Jesus was cut from a different cloth. He stops. And Sabbath, by the way, Sabbath means something in this world, just in case you forgot. See, a Jewish, ancient Jewish person had to memorize and live by all, just hundreds of laws within the Torah and then, and then uh, rabbinic writings like the Talmud. And six days a week, it was a, it was a big deal to follow all these laws. On Sabbath, it was a real drag because there was even... Uh, plethora of more laws that you had to follow on the Sabbath. and So you can literally go back in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures and see a bunch of Sabbath laws, Shabbat laws, what that looked like. And then what the, what the ancient Jews did is they, they took these rabbinic writings where rabbinic schools would debate over, they would take what was in the Torah and the Scriptures and they added to it. So within the Talmud, you would find these rabbinic writings where they would add to the laws that you find in the Hebrew Scriptures, even more to it. And then these Pharisees and Sadducees and and legal experts would debate over the Torah and the Talmud, and they would still add yet more. They would try to interpret the the Sabbath laws, and then they would say, well, I think because of this, we should say this, this, this are legal too on the Sabbath. Are you with me? So you had all sorts of laws about the Sabbath what you can and can't do, turning this day of rest that God gave as a gift to his people into a real drag, where you had to watch yourself if you wanted to be religiously accepted. And Jesus knows all the debates. He asks, what, what, what's lawful to do here? Because, see, in this culture and in this moment, in this religious world, It was more religiously, you were considered more religiously upright if you would walk by this person who was dealing with a health condition because you're observing the Sabbath laws. They were actually being good Jews by doing that. See, in this world, in this culture, they actually had these rules debated and it said basically if you come across a person who's in need of health care, if their life is not in danger, you leave them be on the Sabbath. Doctors, hospitals, healthcare clinics, they shut down on Sabbath because you're not supposed to do any work. So literally that means that people who are in need of care, people who are in need of compassion, it's your religious duty to neglect them and let them sit on the wayside. And this is our religious heritage, just so you know. We can't see these as others. And I could stop right here and preach a whole sermon just on that one right there. Because I want to say that resembles our religious world quite a bit. What matters most in our religious world? Well, of course, it's following the rules. Of course, it's showing up for home church and Bible study. Of course, it's getting to know the Scriptures and debating them and getting a real good handle on our doctrine. Of course, right? I would say we resemble these religious leaders who would say it's more important to follow the law than to heal this person. But see, our Savior our teacher, our rabbi, Jesus, God incarnate, comes and breaks the rules in the scriptures, in the sacred text, in order to bring healing to this person, in order to love this marginalized person. Anybody got any sermons in mind right there? God comes and breaks his own rules in order to bring healing to a person who needs it. What does this have to teach us about our current religious world and practice? If you're wondering what God's more interested in, your, the, your, your behavior and your following the rules and your knowing the right doctrine, or caring for the marginalized and least of these, it should be a no-brainer. So, just in case now, friends, just in case you think I'm getting political right now, I'll bet you any money there's somebody listening online or in this room right now, maybe you're a mom who was invited or whatever, and you're like, ah, this is getting political, or this guy's pretty liberal, I just want to tell you, this is, this is, foundational kingdom ethics for Luke. See, the, what scholars say this is a product of in the book of Luke, in Luke 14, is a product of the foundation that Luke set in the very beginning of the story. We have some Christmas, some pieces of the Christmas story that we just kind of fly by in order to get to that Christmas story that are so foundational for Luke, it actually tells, Luke is telling us about what God's purposes are in the world. Let's look at some of these Pivotal passages that this then rests on. Let's go to Luke 1 Bulow. Foundational theological passages in Luke. What's the first one I put up there? In the time of Herod. This is Luke 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. These are important people. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive they were very old. That right there says Elizabeth lived in disgrace. Elizabeth was barren. Elizabeth was one of those, maybe like some of you women, you ladies who today's a painful day for because you can't have babies. And in this culture, that meant you were seen as a reject and a failure of a woman. Almost all your value in this culture had to do with, can you produce offspring, particularly male offspring? So Elizabeth lived in shame. And then we go to... You can move on, Bilo... After this, his wife Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is what God is doing in the first bits of the story of, the, the story of Jesus, is he's bringing dignity to this woman who, ha- who lived in shame and disgrace. Then we get this birth of Jesus foretold to, to Mary. Mary visits Elizabeth, and then we get to this really pivotal bit of Lucan theology, which is called Mary's Song. You can move ahead, Beulah, to verse 46. And Mary said, "'My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant.'" From now, all gener- from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent away the rich empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be faithful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. Pivotal, foundational theology for Luke. And then the last one that scholars say Luke's theology was built on, and that he's saying this is the core, fundamental element of the ministry of Jesus, Luke 4. Luke 4, starting in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Now, if you've been paying attention for these last, I don't know, eight months, you know that Galilee means something. I'm not going to quiz you, but returning to Galilee should mean something. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Remember, I told you, Jesus was a Sabbath-observing Jew. It was his custom to go to synagogue on, on the Sabbath. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet was handed, Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling, and he found the place where it was written, this, and Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." Now, for most of us, these texts are just kind of add-ons to the Christmas story. This random woman Elizabeth or Mary's song just as the precursor to getting into the real Christmas story. But for Luke, he includes these stories in here to show this is what Jesus is going to be all about. See, this is what the kingdom looks like. For most of us, these are just empty words. Oh, yeah. Sure, but... Jesus has come to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and prisoners and announce the gospel to the poor and yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get to the meat of it. What do we got to believe and do? What do I got to believe and how do I have to behave? That's the important stuff. That's the guts of Christianity, right? See, for Luke, this is what Christianity is all about. For Luke, these are the foundational texts that show, and this is what churchy people would say, this is what Luke believes God's purposes in the world are. It's not metaphorical. It's not symbolic. It's actually what God wants us to be, what Jesus is all about, and if we're walking in the way of Jesus, it's what we're called to be all about, caring for the marginalized and the oppressed orienting ourselves to those who don't have as much as we do. Thinking about those who are hurting right now. Not being obsessed with me, mine, and ours, but being obsessed with how do we care for creation and how do we, how do we, how do we care for the marginalized among us. See, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. To Luke this is what Jesus' ministry is all about. And so when you see Jesus doing these things of healing people who were rejected and marginalized, it's not just add-on or filler that we don't have to pay attention to. It's the core of the kingdom of God. The kingdom looks like setting the oppressed free, dreaming and scheming about how we can, how we can fight against injustice. The kingdom looks like caring for, the, for, for those who need care. This is what Jesus was all about on planet earth. And the, Luke is saying this is what the people of God need to be all about. This is not just add-on fun stuff. This is the guts of the kingdom of God for Luke. Is it for us? So Jesus heals this guy. Becomes ceremoniously unclean, doesn't care. He's breaking the rules. He's breaking religious rules. Now he's going to break all the societal and cultural rules. Jesus, the bad dinner guest. Let's get to it. So Jesus heals the guy, breaks the religious rules, and then when he noticed, he goes into the dinner party and he notices how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. He told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast... Do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinctu- distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say, Hey, uh, can you uh, get up and give this person your seat? Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, you will say to you, friend, Move up to a better place. Then you will be more honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Did, we, were, did someone say that? Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. How do we ever think this is not required? This is not the stuff of the kingdom. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So, if you study this passage, which I have, and I'm not saying that to say I'm the authority, I'm just, I, just, I've, I don't know all the background. I was, I, when you become a pastor, you don't get endowed with all this wisdom. You just got to study like a normal person. And scholars will tell you, scholar after scholar will say, you can't overestimate the importance of these, of these dinner rules right here. Scholars say that all of their societal structures really rest in, these, in this dinner etiquette right here, in, in, in both who's at what place on the table and who's at the dinner party. Everything rests on this in this culture. Where you sat on the table literally was, was demonstrated and told people where you are in the power structure of this culture. So of course, everyone would naturally be saying, I'd like to be near the head of the table, like, how do, I, how do I work my way in there? Jesus is speaking into it. And then, they re, even more important was this, this was a reciprocal culture. Everything was built. Whether you're the emperor of Rome or you're some random person in the countryside, you were expected to live in this reciprocal kind of way. So when you threw a dinner party, you would only invite the people, A, who would make your dinner party look really good, because if you had the right people at your dinner party, it meant that you were high in the totem pole in this culture. And B, you would only invite a person who could invite you back, because as soon as you were invited to a dinner party, it was basically saying, hey, I want you to come over for dinner and I want you to have me over for dinner in a couple weeks. It was a must. It would, if you didn't invite somebody back for a dinner, dinner party, you were breaking all the rules. And you would never invite a poor person if you were a person who was, like this, Luke says, this is a prominent Pharisee, in other words, rich and powerful. You would never invite a poor person. A, because you would say, I am on the same level of status with this poor person, you would never do it. And also because you would be putting this poor person in a really uncomfortable, embarrassing position because they would have to decline your invitation because they, they knew that they could not invite you back so they cannot attend your meal. So much of their culture and their society was wrapped up in these dinner rules and these rules of reciprocity. And so, Jesus, in our little 14 verse section, beginning of this episode, comes and he breaks religious rules by healing this sinner, becoming unclean himself. And then he comes into their dinner party and just says, All your rules, your whole society is built on. I'm coming to smash them to smithereens. I'm turning your world and your norms and your culture, what's culturally acceptable, I'm turning them on their head. Scholars will say it can't be overstated how radical this was. Jesus, our Savior, just in case we're feeling nice and comfortable in our churchy world, Jesus was seen, friends, as a pure and simple radical. Jesus was a rabble-rouser who literally came to turn their culture and their society on its head. Because he's like, he says, I don't care about your rules of reciprocity. I don't care about your etiquette. I don't care about your social standing. I care that you manifest me in my kingdom. And that looks like caring for the least of these and loving the people who can't love you back in the ways that you think about and investing in things that aren't going to bring you a a great, investing in things other than stocks which are going to help your retirement, but investing in people who can't do anything for you because this is just the way of my kingdom. See, as Jesus approached this guy with dropsy or edema, this guy needed Jesus. Jesus heals him. Scholars say this episode of Jesus healing this guy is both probably literal, but also many scholars believe that Luke was being metaphorical here in painting a picture and saying, See, if this guy who has this insatiable thirst for more that might just kill him if he keeps drinking, if he can be healed, religious people like you and me who have this insatiable thirst, the Pharisees who had this insatiable thirst for more money and more power, everyone knew that's how the Pharisees were. Luke might be saying, if this guy who's unclean and a sinner can be healed, who has this insatiable thirst for more that might kill him, These guys over here who have this insatiable thirst for more money and more power, they might even be possibly healed too by Jesus. And see, Jesus went to the guy with dropsy because he knew he needed healing. And the religious leaders that were watching shouldn't have been challenged. They shouldn't have been thinking about how they're going to kill Jesus. They should have been saying, can you heal me too? Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. A sinner. So, who are we going to embody and identify with more in this story, friends? The unclean sinner who knew how bad he needed healing and walked away whole? Or the religious elite? who are more pissed off by the fact that Jesus broke some rules on the Sabbath rather than bringing his kingdom about and healing this person? Are we going to be more obsessed with getting our doctrine right and breaking down the scriptures in a correct fashion, or are we going to obsess more about the healing that God wants to, to break forth in and through our lives? Are we going to be more obsessed about following the rules that Jesus broke or are we going to be more obsessed with including the people that Jesus included? I want to be known as a church where if you're rejected by other churches, you go to Bruce City Church. I want to be known as a person where people might say, Yeah, Randy's a Christian, Randy's a pastor, but he's a different kind of Christian. He's a different kind of pastor. I want to be surrounded by people who are willing to break some rules in order to love people. Because that's what we see in the Gospels. That's what our Savior did. Frank, we're gonna. You got a song to sing. It's not. It's Waymaker, right? Yeah. Can we do? Can we do? um, Come as you are again. Can you come up? And Nolan, come on up. I want to do this song again because as we were singing through it the first time earlier this morning, it just embodies this way that we've been that I've been talking about for the last half hour. I get overwhelmed by stories. I'm not going to point anybody out, but just. Every Sunday morning, I get to speak to a a great friend who is putting his life, has put his life back together and is five years sober. And has been repaying debts and fixing, trying to fix and bring wholeness to all that was broken for years and years and years. That's who I want to be around on a Sunday morning, or around a friend who is gay and it said i've never felt home before at a church but i feel home here that's the kind of church i want to be friends that's the kind of christian i want to be let's stand and pray What a savior. Jesus, I, I would have never expected a savior who breaks his own rules in order to love and heal people. But man, I love it. You are always about healing. You're always about redemption and new life. You're always about including Rejects and the marginalized. Can we actually be formed and transformed by this gospel of yours? Now, as we sing these words, I don't want to sing them in a way that says, come if you're broken, if come if you're rejected, because we have all the answers. I want to sing this, I'm just saying this personally, I want to sing this in a way that says, if you're rejected, if you're excluded, if you find yourself on the outside looking in, come among us so we can learn from you. Come and be with us so we can find Jesus in you. So I can repent of my religious ways and follow Jesus arm in arm along with you. So friends, let's sing this song in light of the Savior that we had who breaks the rules in order to bring healing.